and welcome to another episode of G220 Radio. This is Ricky Gantz along with Mike Miller, and we have George Hassan joining us as a guest co-host tonight. Uh, we're going to be talking about episode, or this episode is episode 488, and we're going to be talking about the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689. We are in chapter 22 of Religious Worship and the Sabbath Day. This is going to be an interesting show. Um, just recently, I've been having some conversations about the, the church, the Sabbath, the importance of coming and gathering together uh, on the Lord's Day. And so then I we, we, we wanted to get back to our series, and here we are talking about the Sabbath Day here on uh, G220 Radio. Mike, what's up, brother? Did okay. Ready to talk about the importance of Christian worship, which is something I feel like is a topic we cover quite often, whether in passing or not. Um, so probably a lot of our listeners are not going to be surprised to how we come and end up on this issue. Yeah, absolutely. And as I said, George Sasson is with us uh, tonight for the first time. Uh, George, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing and uh, let the listeners know a little bit about who you are. Uh, hey, guys, my name is George and uh, I'm 27 years old. I have a beautiful wife and a one year old son. And uh, we are I'm well, I'm one of the leaders at Beacon Bible Study. You can find that on Facebook, on YouTube. Um, we also have a website, beaconbiblestudy.org. Our primary thing that we do is we really believe in the communal gathering of God's people around his word with a cracked open Bible. And so every Tuesday night we do a Bible study. We've been walking through the book of Luke now uh, since March 2020, and we're all the way in Luke chapter nine. So we're rolling right along in real Puritan fashion. Uh, we also, for some of the extras, who, for people that can't join us physically, uh, we have a podcast called Beacon Podcast. Uh, you can find that on our website. You can also search that on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all the major podcasting platforms. And we also have a blog as well um, on our website. Uh, we write there anything that is right-worthy, anything that's really touched our hearts, or we want to relay to people in a writing kind of a medium. Uh, so really, uh, Beacon Bible Study grew from just a house uh, Bible study, and now it's this, sometimes it feels like it's a too big of a thing. <laughs> so we really appreciate God's grace in that way. Yeah. Um, and sorry, lastly, I actually just got accepted to Reformed Baptist Seminary, and I start there in the fall. IRBS down in Texas? Um, Reformed Baptist Seminary out of California okay. with um, Hunter Gant, uh, Hunter Gans, actually. Yeah. Nice, nice. Well, praise the Lord for that. Glad to have you um, joining us. And if, if you don't mind, uh, we were talking a little bit before the program, and you was telling me how you got familiar with the 1689. I thought it was very fascinating. Maybe you'd <laughs> like to share that. Yeah, so um, I have really ascribed to Calvinism um, since about 2017. And uh, it wasn't until I moved back to my hometown and I got to uh, make uh, relationships with an old friend of mine, uh, my friend Joey, who's actually a leader here at Beacon. Um, we started Beacon Bible Study when I was a Calvinist and he was an Arminian. And uh, during COVID of June 2020, he became a Calvinist and uh, he was a Calvinist for about a month. And then he comes to me with the 1689 confession. So he went from Calvinist to reformed like that, guys. I tell you what. So uh it was it was the greatest thing. And so here we are uh, sitting down trying to read this confession in Old English. And unbeknownst to us, we were not aware of the modern English translation at the time. So we're sitting here trying to read Old English and uh, pulling our hair out. But it was wonderful. It was great. And we found so many rich truths in there. Yeah. Yeah. Praise the Lord, man. The, the confessions are um, a beautiful 
way of keeping you in line with what the scriptures teach. Obviously, here at G220 and, and any Reformed individual will tell you that we stand on sola scriptura, that the, the scriptures alone is what we go to for our faith and practice. And when you look at the confessions, what it is, it is laying out what we believe about individual things taught in the scriptures. When it comes to the doctrine of the scriptures itself, what do we believe about it? Well, the 1689 lays it out for you. The same thing with the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Jesus Christ. When it comes to the doctrine of justification, it lays it out for you. And so the confessions help keep you in line from going off into heresy, uh, so to speak. Because as we've talked about on the program before, even when we've done shows on the 1689 leading up to this one, we've mentioned in some of them that uh, there's many churches that have a statement of faith on their their website uh, that they'll hold to, that when a new person comes in and says, hey, what is it that you believe? They'll give them a, a statement of faith and say, this is what we believe as a church. And for many of them, um, I'm not going to say all of them, I, I haven't read all of these people's statements of faith, but for many of them that I have seen, they're very vague. Um, they will touch on the things that are essential, and, and usually they, they keep those in there. When it comes to God, the Trinity, you know, it comes to Jesus Christ, who he is, when it comes to the, the Spirit, when it comes to um, how a man is saved, they will have those in there. Um, but when it comes to other things that is important doctrines or other things that we would want to maybe know whether or not this church you're going into believes this way or that way, um, they may not be as clear. And even with some of those major doctrines, the, the essentials, as we would call them, they may still be a little vague. It may tell you that they believe in Jesus Christ, but it may not really explain who Christ is. So, and it may not be because they're trying to hide something or they're doing something um, mischievous, you know, or deceitful. It just may, it's a, a vague statement. Where with the confessions, the 1689, the Westminster, these, the Savoy, these confessions are detailed. <laughs> they really break it down what we believe. So is there anything else you guys would want to add as we talk about that real quick? I always what, find it funny that the IFB always have more detailed statements than most evangelical churches. Just going to throw that out there. I think it's funny. It also <clears> makes <throat> it very clear, not, at least for me, it's probably not a church I'm going to attend. Well, and, and here's the thing with us too, and I'll just use our ministry as an example. Uh, when we really started amping things up as far as being online and, and all that other stuff, I was talking to my brother, Charles, who does a lot of our production, all of our production stuff, actually, for, for the ministry. I, I was contemplating, do we want to be so openly reformed? Do we do we want to just kind of put it out there and have it be what it, it be? Or do we want to be a little bit more reserved and then people kind of find out as they come in and, and go along? And one thing that he said has always really stuck with me. He's like, from him personally, who he, he loves Reformed theology, he sees the truths of Reformed theology. When he seeks something out, he wishes that everyone would be as explicit as they could be so that he knows exactly what he's going to listen to. He knows exactly what he's going to get. And, and the best thing that we could do, that any really church or ministry could do, is be as clear as they possibly can. Because what what you're going to get it in the teaching, you might as well be upfront about it as well. Right. Yeah, absolutely, and that's a valid point. Because I mean, you don't want to try to hide anything, and I and I don't think, and I don't want to, I don't want to just assume that these churches that aren't as clear uh, or precise in what it is that they believe are trying to hide things, but it really gets it out there so that people don't have to 
uh, find out later and then it'd be a, a, an issue of conflict for them that they've just been in your church for a whole year and now they're finding out something that you you hold to and now they're moving on because that's not something they agree with. Um, where if they're coming in and saying, hey, look, we hold to the 1689, you can read it, you can see what we believe or the Westminster, whatever these confessions are and they're more precise and, and letting you know exactly what it is that we believe, uh, there's nothing there that can be hidden. There's nothing there that that's not addressed. Um, so that being said, we are going to go through this because, as you know, here on G220 Radio, we are an hour-long program, and it goes by quick. And I've, I've even thought many times when we've had like four paragraphs or three paragraphs in one of the chapters of the confession, like, oh, this is going to be quick. We're going to be done in like 15, 20 minutes, and we go for an hour and probably still could go longer. Um, and so sometimes, as you'll see me and Mike will do, is we try to speed it up a little bit at the end, but we're going to try and go ahead and get started here uh, so that we don't have that issue or try not to have that issue. All right. So getting into the 1689 uh, Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Again, this is chapter 22 of religious worship and the Sabbath day. So we're going to go to paragraph one here. The light of nature shews that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and doth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all thy might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will, that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan, under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. There's a lot there to unpack. Mike, let's jump into it. Yeah, I mean, when I first think about this, we're just going to start off early. We know, you know, the less... Our listeners know I like the Baptist Catechism. And, I mean, you start out right away, question three, the light of nature. How may we know there is a God? The light of nature of men and the works of God plainly declare there is a God. But his word and his spirit only do it fully and effectually for the salvation of sinners. I think you start seeing here that development, which early on is in the Catechism before they even get to the idea of Sabbath down in the later questions part of it. And really what you see here, honestly, is just what does the Bible say about God that what's already been kind of explained? And what does it mean now to be ones who worship him? So I feel like it. hopefully most Christians would say, yeah, this is, you know, we should believe this paragraph. Yeah. I mean, when we, when we understand, I mean, we're honestly seeing the introduction of a lot of doctrines and theologies in here. We're seeing the regulative principle. We're seeing common grace and we're seeing uh, the law of God. I mean, there's already so many things that we're seeing here, which is a great introduction um, to this section. Uh, one of the things that I've really been studying and meditating on lately is Psalm 19. And and the two verses that really stick out with me uh, in Psalm 19 are verses 2 and 3, where it says, Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, 
their voice is not heard. And I love how the psalmist puts it here. The, the day, the, the creation of God, what he has done, it screams that there's a God. It proclaims day to day, night to night, that there is a God. And it actually shows some general attributes of God. Our God is creative. Our God gives life. Our God sustains. Our God cares. But what it does not do, and, and we know this, gentlemen, we understand this, that the understanding the light of nature, it can't save. This is right out of Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, uh-huh. that... Uh-huh. God is worthy to be praised and worthy to be known simply by what he has done. But at the same time, God only um, shows us what we should do and what he has done for us in the word of his revelation. And that's actually the second half of Psalm 19. It contrasts the creation of God to the word of God. And at the end of Psalm 19, what we see is an expounding on the gr- the goodness and the greatness of the written word versus the uh, light of creation and the light of nature. Yeah, I think you think about, you know, the importance of scripture here back to the catechism, because you can't really separate these. Question five, may all men make use of Holy Scripture. All men are not only permitted, but commanded, exhorted to read, to hear and understand the Holy Scripture. And that, you know, even the early Baptists thinking about how God talks to people in covenant. That's the only way he speaks about it. This is um, Keech's, no, Nehemiah Cox's kind of push and into covenant theology. And to think about that we're creatures made to worship. We're going to worship something. Mm-hmm. And... Calvin, you know, speaking on kind of this idea is that there was no sin. The the nature of men and God's work would drive us to worship him. But sin has destroyed that connection and that we need now something else, his, you know, the reveal will, um, so that we can worship him and to understand how to worship him rightly which we see very early on the effects of when we don't worship him rightly in chapter four of Genesis. Yeah. I mean, in that, in that second statement, we, we see uh, that he may be worshiped. Uh, he may not be worshiped, excuse me, according to the imagination devices of men nor the suggestion of Satan under any visible representation. I mean, Leviticus chapter 10 with Nadab and Abihu with strange fire. Second Samuel mm-hmm. chapter six with Uzzah, they were supposed to transport the ark on on the poles, but they didn't. They put it in a cart, and, and that's where they got that. That's the domino that set everything ablaze. And then we see, also see with Acts chapter five with Ananias and Sapphira, why it says Satan filled their filled their heart, and then they lied to the Holy Spirit. And you know, I, I love to say this to a lot of my friends. Uh, what was the name of the golden calf in Exodus thirty two? Well, they called it Yahweh. They, they gave, they, God's covenant name was revealed to them and they attributed God's covenant name to an idol. It wasn't there. They were worshiping some other God is that they were building something, right? So that they could see their God and they broke the law before the law was even physically brought down to them. I mean, just so many different areas that we've seen how scripture um, is first and foremost on the minds of these men, these gentlemen who are writing, right? We would say that we're confessional. And that's a very good thing. Just like Ricky, you were saying, these are guardrails against heresy and false teaching. 
But what we would never say, and no truly uh, good and godly reformed person would ever say, is that uh, the confession confirms scripture, but scripture confirms the confession. Yeah, well said. And and what we were talking about earlier, you mentioned it, George, the regulative principle. So there we see in this this first paragraph that that there is ways in which God has prescribed to be worshipped, and there is ways not to worship him. And so there's a thing within Reformed theology uh that we hold many hold to called the regulative principle. Now even within the regulative principle, and we're not doing a show on the regulative principle. We're not going to get into all the ins and outs on that, because even within that, you're going to find disagreements. I've been in churches before where they held to the regulative principle and we had a piano and we sung hymns and we sung psalms and we sung, you know, uh, maybe had other instrumental um, instruments brought in uh, at times. Then I've been in churches where there's no instruments at all because they're adhering to the regulative principle. And, and so that's how they view it. So not going to get into all those ins and outs, but there is a regulative principle that you can look at as a guideline of does the scripture say this or does the scripture not say this? Because what we see today, and you guys can speak to this as well, what we see today is a lot of churches trying to worship God in the ways in which they choose to worship God, as was already mentioned, um, you know, Nadab and Abihu, uh, going with the golden calf different ways in which men were seeking to worship the one true and living God um, that was not the ways in which he had prescribed them to worship him. And so with the regulative principle, what men are trying to do, confessional men, reformed men are trying to do is not go outside of the bounds of scripture to worship God as they see fit in their own minds, as it says. And this paragraph was um, as much of the confession there was controversies at the time, you know, you're dealing with Roman Catholicism and you're dealing with the Anglican church. And so they're trying to put these things in here because you have according to the imagination and devices of men who come and say, this is how you're to, to practice and this is how you're to do these things. So um, just wanted to put that out there about the regular principle. If you're not familiar with it, I don't think we've done a show on it, but uh, you can look those up or ask us questions about it. And maybe we'll, we'll do something in the future, but anything you guys want to add to that? Um, just a resource for anyone who's listening, uh, a film by Les Lamphere, Spirit and Truth. Phenomenal. Uh, I, I think it's one of the best films I've ever seen on regulative, the regulative principle of worship. Uh, it's on American Gospel TV. I know you can buy that again. Um, you can buy the DVD or stream it on streaming devices. Again, that's a film by Les Lamphere, uh, Spirit and Truth. It's a great resource. Yeah. And to think about even during this time period, the Baptists are arguing about whether we should have piano music within the church to um, Cox is one of the first ones to um, not Nima. I'm getting these names confused, but you know, Benjamin the names, Keech. Though. Yeah. <laughs> Benjamin you know Keach uh, is one of the first ones to have piano and music and congregational singing within the church. And you having these kind of even debates, within early reformed if you want to call them that baptists particular baptists at the time and so you even early on are having the debates now they're clearly like you said ricky they're looking at probably most likely catholicism because you do have a lot of puritans in the church kind of in this time you know and they're added works and sacraments that they put mm -hmm. on um, with it. But even, you know, reformed churches are debating 
the Baptist churches are debating these some of these issues that we see today. So these are nothing new um, within Reformed Baptist or particular Baptist um, theological discussion. But most likely, having a a slide with a big pool at the bottom for baptisms would be outside of the regulative principle and outside of God's bounds for worship. And I say that in jest, but it's happened. Uh, yeah. Maybe we'll find some archaeology evidence of it. You never know. <laughs> yeah, it was. All right, let's Jump. move on to paragraph uh, two. Religious worship is to be given to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to Him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creatures, and since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the meditation of any other but Christ alone. Gentlemen. I mean, really what we're seeing here, um, I mean, yes, we're seeing obviously scripture here, but also the the time and, and, and the day in which these men lived. Um, Ricky, like you were saying, you know, the Anglican church is to the right, the Catholic church is to the left. And here, here are these guys kind of stuck in the middle of it. Um, during the time of Roman Catholicism, it was actually expected that uh, people would make pilgrimage to Rome. Um, if you want to take it in, in a, any kind of a sense, just as people in the Old Testament would make pilgrimages, pilgrimages to Jerusalem, so too Roman Catholics would make pilgrimage to Rome um, and, and they would pay homage to certain sites and certain holy relics. And, and this was something that these men were adamantly against, obviously, for very good reason. Uh, J uh, John chapter four, uh, Christ makes it very clear. The woman asked him, should I worship God on this mountain or in that mountain? Uh, and she was a Samaritan. So she, the Samaritans worshiped on this mountain. And then uh, the Jewish temple was on the other mountain. And Jesus says, I tell you one day. Uh, we're true worshipers. True worshipers will worship me in spirit and in truth. It doesn't matter uh, where we worship. Now I say that, and then we we sometimes get people saying, "Well, wherever there are Christians gathered, there is the church. There is where we have church." Now Christ has made it very clear, and I'm, I might be getting out of bounds here, so just let me know, fellas. Uh, Christ was very clear that we can have church anywhere. But however, we need to make sure that we are remaining in the confines of how the Bible describes what church should be. There is a pastor who is shepherding care for your souls. There are elders of a church to spiritually guide. There, there, and there's a few other things that the Bible talks about and, and the qualifications thereof uh, of a church. But ultimately, uh, John chapter 4, if you had one text, uh, John chapter 4 would just put the nail in the coffin, in my opinion. Hmm. And also notice... What is the what is the worship? Hmm. It's the worship of a triune God, which obviously the confessions already discussed early on, so they're not going to you know develop that. But that religious worship is towards the triune God. It's not just the Father or the Son, and maybe a little bit hesitant even on the Reform side is the Spirit. Mm -hmm. And that we worship them as one because they are one. And that we, our thoughts when we worship should be on the triune God. And that our meditation and then is also on Christ alone, who is the one who has taken our salvation, who has saved us, the, the point of the gospel. And I think that's important when we start kind of drifting away 
I think we see this a lot in the, the mainstream evangelical church where the gospel is assumed mm. you have to kind of be able to provide entertainment. Something else is being added into worship. It's losing focus to it. Now they may give lip service to this worship. And usually you hear it kind of in general in God, but I'm, I think it's important that we realize that this is, we're not just worshiping the father. We're worshiping a triune God in all of them. And I think that when we start thinking about how that works off, especially when you start getting into prayer, the effectual work of the scripture as it's being preached and some of the other ideas in which church we come to church, um, it becomes very, I mean, really you can't have a church without rightly worshiping God and who he is and his person. Yeah. And, and I think it's very important because, um, you know, we, we've kind of talked about this, not, not worshiping the, the other idols and, and ways of uh, people will try to prescribe worship to God and then ultimately be worshiping a false idol, something that they've created in their own minds. But here in the, the paragraph two, it also makes this mention after speaking about the triune God <clears throat> and him alone. It says not to do that, not to give worship to angels or saints or any other creatures. Uh, and uh, and since the fall, not without a mediator, there has to be a mediator. In the Old Testament, everyone that's ever been saved has been saved through Christ, right? But in the Old Testament, they had this mediator. They would go to the priest and bring their offerings, bring their their sacrifices to mediate between you know uh, God and man. Um, but it was never something, it was only a type. It could never fulfill, be that ultimate fulfillment of what the anti-type was going to be, which is Christ who came and died on that cross, was buried and rose again on the third day, shedding his blood, being that perfect lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And so he is the only mediator. We don't have a co-mediatrix, as the Roman Catholicism would say, where you have Mary also mediating on behalf of of man before before man and Jesus Christ to God. And so there's one mediator and it's Christ and Christ alone. Hmm. All right. So moving on to uh, paragraph number three, let's move this up here. Prayer with thanksgiving being one part of natural worship is by God required of all men, but that it may be accepted it is to be made in the name of the Son, by the help of the Spirit, according to His will, with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance, and when with others in a known tongue. Gotcha, charismatics. <laughs> I was Sorry, waiting for it. I was, I was waiting. It's a joke. I appreciate it. It was funny, though. It was, it was good. good. Yeah. I think that's, you know, obviously important. We'll get to it. Um, it is interesting when, so I've done, I've taught the Baptist catechism to kids. So I've gone through most of the questions. Um, prayer is the last thing to be covered in the catechism and dealing with kind of the worship area. It is interesting that here in the confession, it is brought out first before preaching. So it's flipped. Um, preaching is first and the, the scripture but I do, when you think about, I mean, just 
prayer is obviously a natural part of worship. Like you see, just considering that, I realize these people are going to be worshiping false God, but like people crying out to mother nature or calling out to some higher spiritual being or even the idea of giving thoughts, good thoughts. I think all show that by nature, mm-hmm. kind of this idea of prayer works. Now you see it in, a, in Western religions or in Eastern religions and, you know, there's other places too that's, that's crept in. I think the chasm hits the point that there, that prayer is a natural part of how we worship. And that is required by, required by God for all men. But now how do we define what is a true biblical prayer? And I think that's the importance that we're in the name of the son, not just tacking it on the end, kind of as a lot of times we do, we pray in the spirit, knowing the spirit is groans for us and according to his will. Mm-hmm. And however that is, I think as as just learning more about it, like sometimes how does that look at, what does it mean to pray, you know, according to his will? And I think it's, you know, his revealed will praying for our sanctification, that we be obedient to the commands of God and to, to love him more. And then you start then seeing that with the understanding, the reverence, humility, fervencies, and how prayer takes our eyes off of ourselves and, and in part see our sins and our inadequacy and sets our eyes onto the one who can help us and the one who has saved our soul and gives us the power to live in obedience in this new life. And so, so I think there's a very powerful move here about stressing prayer really early on in this idea of worship because it's most natural and it's something we can do in private and almost commanded to do when living a life of prayerfulness. Yeah. I mean, if I can just even speak on this from a, from a personal standpoint, um, we see prayer mentioned in two paragraphs on the, in the confession. And Mike, like you said, it's mentioned even before the preaching or the reading of the word. And prayer is probably the thing that Christians in mass do the least. Mm. Um, and, and here the, the confession writers are saying, no, this is this, this is this important. This is that important. And so one thing that we do at our church and, and uh, pastor Tim, if you're watching this, this is, this is a shout out to you. One of the things that my, my pastor does so, so well, and I'm so thankful for, is that there is an abundance of prayer throughout the service and corporate prayer, uh, prayer of confession, prayer of thanksgiving. Um, and, and I'm sure there's more. I'm just I'm just forgetting. Um, but the, the one thing that we are able to do in, in a corporate setting is we are able to come together in a spiritual sense and in, in a palpable spiritual sense and and and. and go to our father together as a, as a community of believers, as a family of believers and and pray in like-mindedness. And I think that's something that's just so wonderful and so great. And Mike, to your point, I I agree. I think people need to be taught, honestly, be taught how to pray. I think most people pray as in a, uh, as in a wish type of sense or, or, or a transactional type of sense. And I think the idea of prayer is really lost today. And unfortunately we don't have enough time to talk about that and unpack that this evening, but, uh, 
uh, one thing I would also like to say to our listeners, please, um, if you ever have, if you have time after this, after watching this, or you're watching this now as a, as a recording, uh, read the proof texts here. Uh, read these texts. Know where these writers are getting these things, because uh, Mike, you you referenced two proof texts already tonight: Romans eight twenty six and twenty seven, and First John five fourteen. Uh, the we're not just getting this out of the Reformed ether here. We we are getting this from from the Word. Going back to what Ricky said in the beginning: sola scriptura by uh, Scripture alone. So I just wanted to throw that out there as we roll along here. Yeah. Nope. We've done a show on how to pray the Bible. I think, you know, that's applicable here. And I think we're the, this is why we should understand the catechism or the confession with the catechism. Because the, the catechism explains even more. Um, and I'm not seeing it kind of quickly looking over in the catechism, in the confession. But question 106, what rule hath God given for our direction of prayer? And the answer is the whole word of God is of use and direct us in prayer. But by special rule of direction is that prayer in which Christ taught his disciples commonly called the Lord's prayer. And now you kind of see the difference in what a confession does and what the catechism is seeking to do and kind of applying some of those a little bit more deeply into our hearts to think about it. But even there, God has not only given us the, the national, the natural part to worship him in prayer. He's given us what we are to pray for. Again, you know, understanding his will and how that unpacks. Yeah. And this last part here, and I, I think it's it's very interesting. It's been brought up already, so I don't want to continue to to go back and and go over what's already been said. But I, I do think it's very interesting how, uh, Mike, you had mentioned, you know, when we're praying privately and then praying corporately. Um, because it does say it here, it gives this, uh, it says, you know, you're according to his will with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance. And then it adds, and when with others. So this is that when you're praying privately, this is something that you as a Christian should do. And I agree with George, I think as Christians, uh, as churches, we could do a lot more of prayer. Uh, we could always pray more than we do pray. But it says here in the last part, Mike made the joke in the beginning when we started to read this passage, uh, in a known tongue, in a known language, as the scriptures teach us. These were speaking in languages. This is what tongues are in the scriptures. And what good is it going to do you if you're speaking in some language that the people that are around you and you're praying corporately together are going to be able to be benefited from in those prayers, right? So <clears throat> that's, uh, I don't know if you want to add anything yeah. to that or we'll move on to four. So... To put it in context, here they're talking about Roman Catholic prayers or services, which are all mm. done in Latin. Mm -hmm. So this idea of known tongue is the vernacular, someone to understand, because people would go to church in a Roman Catholic church and they wouldn't understand. It's all in Latin. They don't know Latin. They know their yeah. native language. And so then that's kind of the importance. Yes, I made the joke about charismatics and their heavenly language. I think it does apply, mm -hmm. but it, the confession at this time is looking at Latin, in which a lot of these people write them new Latin. That's the language of, um, that's theology is being done. Um, but they also saw the importance that worship is not just academic. It's relational. And, you're, and with it, and we do it together, and we do it where we understand what's going on. 
that's what drives worship. Yeah. All right. So moving into number four, I think I'd be interested to hear your guys on the end of this here. Uh, But prayer is to be made for things lawful and for all sorts of men living or that shall live hereafter, but not for the dead, nor for those of whom it may be known that they have sinned the sin unto death. Hmm. So let's place it. I can make a joke here about Mormons, but I'll, I'll save it. Um, we got to think about Roman Catholic theology at this point. This is obviously still very predominant in 1689. I mean, the Reformation at this point is, what, 170 years or so going on. A couple generations, they're still thriving. They're still fighting. One thing we should kind of see within and what they're talking about that not for the dead is those who would have been in purgatory praying that they will not spend as much time in purgatory and to think about, okay, then what are we to pray? If that's not a theology we believe in, what does it mean to pray and who to pray for? And then I think you see this understanding of, Will we pray for kind of our the people around us, that things will things made lawful, that we pray for our culture, we pray for our government, we pray for those interactions. But we also pray for those people specifically. So in our case, we pray for the president, that he will be saved, that he will enact rules that are in accordance to what God has commanded. And that we pray maybe for our future children, if we're looking to have more or for the future generations that they will rise up and be, you know, kind of the the John Huss, Martin Luther type of mentality. And these are things that here the confession is saying that we pray for. And you see in second, first Timothy two, one is that idea of praying for those in different stratus or statuses within our our world today and you know and i guess praying for those who you know we don't pray for those who kind of died rejecting jesus there is no opportunity after death to do and i think that's also what they make clear here towards the end of that statement and i think it's it's powerful and we can show this and look at it for mormons shouldn't be praying for the dead or baptizing them you know, those are false teaching. Those are heretical teachings that we live once and then we die in the judgment. And we should consider how we now live our lives. And that as Christians, we should pray that people will realize that you only live one life and God wants you to live in a way that glorifies him. So, so Ricky, you said you're, I'm interested in seeing how you guys are going to tackle the end here. So I'm going to give it my best shot. So... Uh, I'm going to quote Sproul here. If you have a weak point, you quote Sproul. And um, except here, for baptism. Except for baptism. That's right. Yes. We got MacArthur for that. Um, so when when uh, I remember coming across the passage when we were studying in the book of Luke and we were looking at Matthew's, um, Matthew's rendering, uh, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And so mm-hmm. I really didn't understand how that worked itself out. So I found uh, R.C. Sproul Q&A. 
and, and he kind of laid it out this way. So this is me quoting Sproul, just making sure everyone knows that. Uh, when Jesus was talking about blasphemy against the Son will be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Uh, what he was talking about there, and in the context of what he was talking about there, was that when the it's when the Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out demons with demons, and the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in that context is calling the Holy Spirit evil, or calling the Holy Spirit the adversary, or uh, or Satan, or or what have you. Fast forward to Romans. We see there there are people who are in Romans who have been given over, that the God's hand has been released from them, and they're they're gone. God's God's hand has been He has removed His graceful common grace hand from them. Uh, so I'm I'm going to be honest with you guys. You guys are probably more learned on the confession than myself. But when it says for whom it may be known that they have sinned the sin unto death, if we're going to put that into the context of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I'm thinking of a few anti-theists, uh, Richard Dawkins being one of them, Christopher Hitchens, who now uh, is ha has experienced that as well. Uh, men who have said, if this is the God who exists, then this God is evil. Um, that that would be, that could be what's being referenced here. Again, I'm not as learned as, as you gentlemen are. Um, but I will read the uh, scripture that the confessor, the confessors quote. Uh, it's First John, five sixteen. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give. Uh, God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. And, and John is writing this. And, and I believe John is referencing that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in which Jesus says blasphemy against the Holy Spirit um, will not be forgiven. Um, and that's also in conjunction with the sin of unbelief. Yeah, sounds good. <clears throat> <All right. laughs> sounds yeah, no, good. No. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of where I am with that as well. It, it, I do find it as one of those things that um, it's very interesting when you read that there, because ultimately all sin leads to death. All sin leads to death. But we know that there is a sin that there is no forgiveness of. And then you receive eternal death. Hmm. Um, not that you cease to exist, but you will go on forever under the wrath of God in eternal death. And um, <clears throat> I think that fits because you have to ask those questions. And again, this is not something that's not, we don't want to get off into, cause we could take this and we could probably do a whole show on this and we still have to finish first John five. Uh, and so we're <laughs> going to come across this um, probably next week, but um, it's very interesting because you have to take that and saying, if it was the attributing to the works of Satan to Christ, right? The works that he was doing in the power of the Holy spirit to Christ. And he is no longer here. And them writing this in 1689, why are they putting that there? Um, I think, like you were saying there, you have to kind of draw what is the only other sin that leads to death is that unbelief, you know? Um, so uh, it's, it's one of them. Well, I think we'll probably try to explore a little bit more uh, next week on the show when we do First um, John 5. All right, so moving on to paragraph number five. So, the reading of the scriptures, preaching and hearing of the word of God, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, 
as also the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper are all parts of the of religious worship of God to be performed in obedience to him with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. Moreover, solemn humiliation with fastings and thanksgivings upon special occasions ought to be used in a holy and religious manner. Go ahead, Mike. Got it. I mean, there's a lot to say. Um, the catechism also follows this, that um, it's not just reading the word of God in private, but that there is something special that happens in preaching. And we've talked about it um, in previous shows on papers that I've had to write on, write on this and think about this, um, that reading of scripture, preaching, hearing God's word, admonishing one another, these are all commands we see in scripture, what Paul tells us to do, but what we also see in the early church. We see them singing psalms. We see them hearing the preaching of the Old Testament as it connects to Christ. We see them do baptism, and we know the Lord's Supper is happening um, within Acts, and even when Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians, hmm. and that all of these have been commanded for us to do. And if you don't do these, what they would say, rightly, then you're not a New Testament church. What the Baptists are saying, especially in light of what's happening around them, is that if you're not a Credo Baptist, you're not rightly practicing baptism. And henceforth, and this is a debate between, again, John Bunyan, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress, which notes does not talk about baptism. And also Benjamin Keach, who I've mentioned earlier. And the question is, is not being rightly baptized a bar to communion? I think the, the confession here is clear that you have the right administration of baptism and that leads to the Lord's Supper. And that those are, I mean, they kind of connect them, but what does that mean as it plays out? You can probably take these in different ways too, but traditionally Baptists have always seen those connections and that all of these then make up what we do on a Sunday day in and day out. Absolutely. I mean, we, these, what we would sum up as the ordinary means of grace. Um, mm -hmm. We receive grace when we participate in these things corporately. Um, and, and again, this is in a corporate setting. I think that needs to be made abundantly clear. So like when we got like you, Mike, you were talking about gathering for the Lord's Supper at first Corinthians 11, Paul was saying you have, there are some who have taken this um, irreverently. And because of that, some of you have actually died because of it. Um, we would, uh, you know, obviously we would see the, the, uh, spiritual, um, uh, form of communion, not only the memorialistic view, but when we see the reading of the scriptures, baptism, Lord's supper, Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, we receive grace through remembrance of what Christ has done. When we, uh, when we sing, uh, I, I love this quote by an old pastor of mine, Cody Wilbanks. Um, when we sing, listen to the lyrics and you will know the truth of the gospel. 
listen to the voices and you will hear the reach of the gospel. And I, I absolutely love that. And uh, when we, when we participate and practice in these things corporately, uh, Christ in, in the preaching and reading of his word in the uh, ordinances of baptism and communion, there is grace present there. And, and to participate in these things in any negative manner, according to the manner which the confession describes, would um, at the, be at the very least unwise, at the, at the most, um, quite honestly, if I'm going to use the biblical term deadly, if it so pleased God to act in that way again, he would do it. But uh, praise God that he has uh, not. So, Yeah. And I think, too, we've already kind of mentioned it, but he also, they repeat it here, that these are done obedience to him with understanding, faith, mm -hmm. reverence, and godly fear. That, and how Calvin explains it, like you just can't do the Lord's Supper without explaining it. And that's mm -hmm. kind of what preaching does. Preaching allows us to work through a, a text and to think about these things and then be reminded of what has happened at the Lord's table. And I would say every Sunday that this isn't something we should just like, oh, we do it once a month because it's really special. We need that constant reminder every Sunday that Jesus broke his body for us, that he shed his blood for us and that's the essential of the gospel and not only do we see that in reflection of what he's done but also in preparation for what he will do that we will to partake of this meal with him in paradise in the new and heavens and new earth so it's a joyous occasion to spring us to think about and for that longing of eternal joy with christ in the new heavens new earth these are very important understandings that the worship service teaches us. It's why we can't take them away. That's why they're essential and are needed because they help us in our sanctification. As you said, common, the common means of grace to grow us in not only understanding faith, reverence, and godly fear and kind of the, the compounding of that as we seek to worship God on the days he has appointed. I'll save it for, you know, paragraph eight. <laughs> okay. All right. So uh, paragraph six, because we're going to try to move a little, little quicker here. Uh, Neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now under the gospel tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or towards which it is directed. But God is to be worshiped everywhere in spirit and in truth as in private families daily and in secret each by one each one by himself so more solemnly in the public assemblies which are not carelessly nor willfully to be neglected or forsaken when god by his word or providence calleth thereunto um so honestly i think we've we've addressed the majority of this pretty much already um i think the only thing that we really haven't addressed in this section would be um the manners in worship in which is being described here so obviously with families i mean family worship i think is uh a very important thing i have a one-year-old now so honestly i'm uh uh Reftunes just came out with a illustrated version of keech's catechism uh, i'm very excited to get that uh pre-ordered that i'm very excited to get that uh 
but it's, now I'm starting to think, when do I start catechizing my child? When do we start really talking to him about the things of God? Um, and so family worship is definitely something on my mind and something I'm studying out on how to do the most effective, do it in the most effective way I can. Um, and then obviously we have the individual, um, individual worship, uh, which I think is really understood mostly in the church today. I think that's the mm-hmm. thing that's most understood. But honestly, guys, I think that's the thing that's elevated the highest. And that's not what the mm-hmm. Bible elevates to the highest point. The corporate setting is what the Bible elevates to the highest point, because it is the corporate setting that we are commanded to do in Hebrews 10, 25, not to forsake. Um, and so honestly, what the Bible elevates to the highest, I think we elevate to the lowest point um, in our culture today. And, and um, clearly uh, the Bible speaks otherwise. And I would just, I would gracefully say to anyone who's listening, especially now after this whole COVID lockdown thing, if you are not physically attending a church weekly, you need to, by the grace of God, I implore you. And if your church is not meeting in person weekly, find a new church. Yeah, I think to add on to it, I think to elevate the importance of going to the local church. Um, and I've talked about this with my wife. We did a show on this and I kind of explained some of my ideas. That's the importance of preaching. Hmm. Preaching not only teaches you what maybe this particular verse says as your pastor. And this is one who would go verse by verse through the text or paraclete by paraclete, whatever story by story, however they choose to do it. But that sitting regularly under a pastor, one pastor, your pastor, and learning how he reads the Bible and how he expresses that in preaching will help you in your secret devotions, in your private devotions, in your your private worship, family worship you do together. Mm-hmm. And that, that is a time for you to learn and to study not only what is being taught, but how is it being taught? How to read your Bible better, to see the interconnections between the Old Testament and the New, and understand that the Old Testament is Christian scripture. It is what the early church used. That's what the apostles used to teach about Christ. Paul reasons with the Jews from the Old Testament. That is why the local church is important, because it will help you with your family devotions and your devotions by by yourself and to fuel that and to go. And again, it's where God grows you in it, that we, we don't neglect meeting each other's, but we spur one each other on to love and good works. And this now will play a part in when we work out. So I think that's, you know, as you said, George, it is very downplayed in churches. It's about the private devotions. It's about doing this. But I think a lot of people in their having issues in their private devotions is because they're not submitting themselves to a local church Mm -hmm. and learning how to faithfully understand the text of scripture um, by seeing their pastor do it Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Mm. Yeah. As it says there in the end, which are carelessly nor willfully to be neglected or forsaken is what you guys are talking about right now. And just laying that out. I think, I think it's very important that we understand this. We've, we've been very 
we've spoken very highly of the church here on G220 Radio and for good reason, because the scriptures speak very highly of the church. The church is the bride of Christ. If you do not love the bride of Christ, you cannot say you love Christ. Okay. And so if you are willfully neglecting going to church because it's more, it's, it's the only day you get off, or it's the day that you can go to the golf range and, and play golf or the day that you can take your kids to a sporting event. Uh, you know, and I'm not, I'm not saying that those things don't, there aren't times where certain things happen. I've gone on vacation where I've been away from my church, but while I'm away, I try to the best of my ability to find somewhere to gather together. Sometimes that's un, it doesn't happen. So there are times we understand we're giving grace to our brothers and sisters who may need that grace in the times where they're unable to meet. But if you are not making the church a priority in the life of, of, of in your life, as you're walking with the Lord, it's going to be seen by the others around you. If you're raising kids, it's not a priority. They're going to see it. It's going to affect their walk with the Lord. You want them to come to know the Lord, but you don't think the church gathering is a priority. They're going to see that. They're going to know it. Um, we're going to get into now uh, the Sabbath. And so we've got two more paragraphs to go. We're going to run over. Hopefully that's okay. Uh, and uh, you'll stick around with us. So here we are, paragraph seven. As it is the law of nature that in general, a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God. So by his word, in a positive moral and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, he hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week. And from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath, the observation of the last day of the week being abolished. Much, much could be said, said about this, and we're going to do our best to try to um, say what we can. In uh, We can go over. Um, it's our show. We could do that. <laughs> but we're not constrained by time, but we do try to keep it uh, around an hour. But uh, uh, we'll do our best to kind of, condense this here. But the one thing we was just, I was just speaking on, and you guys were speaking on the importance of gathering together, the importance of the Lord's day. Mm. You know, when it comes to the 10 commandments, a lot of times we look at the, the, the fourth commandment and we say, you know, that's, it's not, it, we find our rest in Christ. But as it's seen here in the confession that um, from the resurrection of Christ was changed in the first day, which is called the Lord's day. This is the day in which Christ atoned for the sins of the world. Christ died. Well, he died and was buried and rose again, I should say, um, defeating death. And this is a day we set aside to worship the Lord. It is a day of rest. It's a day of, of worship. Uh, the one and only true God who has manifested himself to us through Jesus as Jesus Christ come in the flesh. Um, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think here. There's, um, when you look back in church history, you see a lot of the, the early church fathers speaking of gathering together on that Lord's Day, the first day of the week. I know I just recently I got into a conversation with someone who was saying, well, the Sabbath has never been changed. It's still Saturday. It's not the first day. But in the scriptures, we see they gathered together on the first day. Where to keep this holy? Now, we understand that there are times of necessity that you're unable to meet. And again, as I mentioned about grace uh, with gathering together, you have to be able to give grace to a brother and sister who may have to work or may have an emergency. 
or you know may have to do something that is a necessity on the Lord's day. But we should keep it as a day of worshiping the Lord. Absolutely. Mike, Mike, you were saying, you know, Sunday, 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 you know, like those big uh, uh, monster truck commercials. But, um, you know, it's important. It's important to understand on the churches on a Sunday. I remember uh, this couple came to our Bible study and we were talking about church and she asked the question, does a church, should a church meet on Sunday? And, you know, my response to her was, unless they absolutely can't, you know, unless the bu- a building isn't available or unless they really, really couldn't, yes, they should meet on a Sunday. And she was actually a little taken back by that. And the explanation, I actually used the confession here. Um, and so like, Ricky, like you were saying, you know, last day of the week in the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament, you know, covenant of, and, and you get a lot of theological implications too, that you kind of have to explain, you know, old uh, covenant of works. Um, Old Testament, Old Covenant kind of thing. But if I can put it really in a condensed version, in the Old Testament, you worked, 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 and then you rested after you worked. Um, that was the paradigm of the entire Old Testament. Uh, not that the work did anything, but that it was a t- uh, it was a type and shadow of what was to come. Mm-hmm. And so now, I mean, we see in Acts 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. And so we see Paul, the apostle, and right Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, all that good stuff. Uh, you met on the first day of the week. And then we also see in Revelation 1.10 where John writes, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. Because now in the new covenant where Christ has finished his work, it's a completed work, and he has finished that mm-hmm. work in sitting at the right hand of God we understand that we are rejuvenated and we are given the strength of Christ to fulfill our week. Whereas before we worked, 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 and then Christ basically caught us as we collapsed through the door. Now Christ gives us life on Sunday, the first day, and we work with his strength throughout the week. And so that's a real practical application of the, why are we meeting on Sunday? Why the first day of the week? Amen. That's good. I think, if you consider both um, paragraph seven and eight, probably paragraph seven is the more accepted. Mm-hmm. Like in general, Christians are going to accept it. I mean, outside of your seven day Adventist and some of the others, um, what we'd probably say who would have nominal um, worship styles that they'll have like a Saturday night service and then Sundays. I do think, you know, as I say, the the early church is clear about this on on Sundays is when they would gather, when they would receive teaching. This happens even in the early church when you move beyond and you get into the church fathers and early church, which is why its tradition has always been. Like the Catholic Church, as much as we would say they have a lot of bad theology. Well, they worship on Sundays because that's what they did. Mm-hmm. That's what was developed. That was the pattern that was set by the apostles. We see it in Acts. Um, I want to say, I'm blundering. I think even Paul mentions it in regards to the Lord's Supper in First Corinthians. I may be wrong about that. It's been a while since I've read First Corinthians, but you have that idea that we come together on Sunday, but notice the freedom that Mm -hmm. we have on this Sunday. 
we're called to come on Sunday, but it doesn't say you have to have Sunday school at 930 and worship service at 1045. It's setting this day aside for worship that we we've set this day aside to come together for worship. Now we have just traditionally done mornings, but that's the catechism doesn't or the um, confession doesn't narrow it down to mornings. You could do it in the evenings if you want to, and that's your main service. But what has to happen is it has to be on Sunday, has to have preaching, has to have the reading of the word, have to be the time you practice the sacraments, and it's time of prayer. It's for a time of prayer. Those are what's required. And so I think we should see the freedom in that with it. But that God has specifically said some of these things that have to be part of it, and that includes the change from kind of the old way of life to new creation and the first day in which we see Christ inaugurate the beginning of the new covenant with his resurrection, which is the central act in which our salvation is fully realized in our justification when he defeats death. And so, yeah, the theological connections with it shows it that this is not just Saturday anymore, that the Lord's Day is Sunday and it's the, the day to gather. Yeah. And now final paragraph eight here, more controversial, as Mike said. Uh, the Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord when men, after due preparing of their hearts, are ordering their common affairs aforehand, do not only observe a holy rest all day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employment and recreations, but are also taken up the whole time in public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. Now, this chapter here, is the reason why there are many Calvinists that would not hold to the 1689 or a Westminster because of the Sabbath day. And um, I think what we've already talked about show the importance of gathering together, coming together on the Lord's day, which is the Christian Sabbath. It's, it is the Christian Sabbath. We can't get around that. Um, but it really comes down to, as our old friend George Alvarado would always say it always comes down to the um, philosophy of ministry. How does it play out? So we can read these things. We can understand there is there is truth here that we should abide with. But then how do we practice that? How does that play out? And that's usually where the division comes uh, for those who would, you know, maybe not consider, consider themselves a Sabbatarian, uh, so to speak. So, Mike. What do you have to say about this one? I mean, it's pretty pretty clear on what the the confession says, and it's make sure you have everything set up so you don't have to do anything that will distract you from worship. It really, is what it is. It's how are you going to structure your day all day? for worship, both corporately, but also privately. What are you going to do to continue this act and devote this time for worship? 
And I mean, the Puritans write about this. Be like even preparing your heart the night before for worship the following day. And to think about taking a day just to, in one sense, rest in the grace of God. And but also in connection with that to worship him. Yes, you are to worship him all other six days, but this is a day devoted for worship, undistracted worship. I think, and a lot of times, I mean, this is even speaking to experience here, is that we're a world full of distractions. I think this mm -hmm. makes this even harder to fulfill, and I think more people balk at it with it because our society is set up in such a way that makes this hard, hmm. especially like if you're a football fan, you know, this, I mean, this says that you should, if you kind of, I mean, obviously there's different levels of Sabbatarian and how they would define this, but kind of a plain reading makes it sound like, you know, you, you, you only can go to Monday night football. You know, let's just or go or, to the college or games. Or college forward. football, yeah, yeah. And, but I do think it causes us to stop and think, and to understand that God wants us to take worship seriously. And, I mean, the Israelites do they? They don't mention it, but you think about the manna given to the Israelites in the desert. For five days, they receive what they need for the day. And if they saved any, the worms would eat it up over the night and they would lose it. But on the sixth day, they receive a double portion in order to sustain themselves for the next day. And I think that's to show us just the importance that we need to do it. We shouldn't, and we should try to devote our time to worship on the Sabbath day and give all of our energies um, to that. Yeah. I mean, we see um, the confessors using Matthew 12, one through 13. I think that's very, uh, obviously that's very potent in scripture, but um, still very potent. You know, Jesus is walking through the grain fields. He's picking heads of grain and Pharisees come out and say, Hey, you're working on the Sabbath, right? You, you, you can't do that. That's unlawful. And, you know, Jesus shares what was uh, David's situation when David and his companions go into the house of the Lord and eat the consecrated bread. And so, you know, I've, I've heard of extremes of people preparing their food the night before, uh, putting it in the fridge and, and then they get up the next day. They didn't even warm it. They couldn't warm it up because that'd be work. Right. And then they eat cold food. Mm -hmm. um, also, you know, have, heard people just, well, I take my Sabbath on a Tuesday, you know? So, uh, I, I'll just give you guys an example of what we do at my house. Uh, uh, I'm blessed that all of, uh, a lot of my friends, we've all kind of gone are go now going to the same church. And so we get up, we go to Sunday school, go to church, come home and we, we invite, uh, people over to our home. We, we make food, we, we have a meal together, talk about the sermon, hang out, maybe play some games and make uh, one of the things my wife and I make sure to do the grass is mowed, but the day before the laundry is done the day before the house is clean the day before, because we want to be able to set apart that time to have fellowship and companionship with our friends. 
And then um, there's an evening service at my church that that starts at six. Um, and, 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 you know, I've had some people say, oh, well, you're making food on the Sabbath. Well, you know, I was referred in the Acts 2.42. You know, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Um, I think there's a, there's a graceful line that I think that that needs to be understood as a graceful line, not a graceful line. If you guys know what I'm saying here, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's there there needs to be the what do I need to do to live? But also, what does the Bible tell me that I'm able to do with my fellow believers? You know, breaking bread, uh, gathering together. You know, there, there, there are things here that are of great grace to to the individual and and to the church as a whole. Um, but Mike, like you were saying, Ricky, like you were saying to void this would just, you know, be a foolish thing to do according to the scriptures. Yeah. And I think also kind of in relation even to um, the duties of necessary of mercy, right? Mm-hmm. That there are professions that require you to work on weekends. And these professions are good. Now I have a friend who's been on the podcast um, before and he kept his a copy, his pretty torn up and tattered copy of the London Confession to get out of working for UPS because UPS isn't a necessary job. It's not like he's a police officer, a firefighter. His wife is a nurse. And so obviously they've had to discuss this. Um, and what does that mean for her work? I mean, nurses as a, a job of mercy, a job of necessity and helping people to get well. And so there is that then considering how does my job play into this worship and that there are times where your job prevents you from worship and it, we should see that as tragic mm-hmm. and a desire to change that. You know, you don't want to be gone every Sunday because that's the day to worship. That's when we come together as a church. Not that a Wednesday night prayer service, or even if you can make Sunday night is bad, but there is that gathering with it. And so, you know, it does, it really, this, this paragraph is really where the rubber hits the meets the road in worship. And how does, how will we structure our life and even jobs that we want to do should be in considering in light of worship moves business moves, moving jobs, changing jobs should be considered in light worship. Will you be able to be able to attend a local church and having, you know, obviously religious exemptions in America allow maybe a little bit more freedom in this, but even just public service jobs that may require, you know, time that you have to work Sundays. How does that work? Yeah. And that's important. Or, you know, and basically you just get job at Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby because <laughs> you solve that issue. Uh, there you go. Yeah, I think this is um, it definitely, like I was saying earlier, it comes down to a philosophy of ministry, how people work this out. Um, that's usually what it comes down to because there are, you can go to the the, the real extreme extremes and there there's validity there's validity in much of what people are trying to say they're trying to keep that day holy and if you go out to eat somewhere at a restaurant you're causing those people to be sabbath breakers because they're working you're adding to that causing them to have a need to work on sunday because they're receiving people 
you know, come into their restaurant or whatnot. So I've heard those arguments. I've heard many arguments. Um, but the one thing I think we do have to keep in mind is that if you're in God, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. And we can have grace on our brothers and sisters in Christ while still trying to implore them, encourage them to gather together on the Lord's day and understand the importance of the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Um, you know, I often hear, yeah, we got a comment here about Chick-fil-A here. Jared Kane says, uh, yeah, let's all go work for Chick-fil-A. <laughs> What's up, Garrett? That's, that's one of mine. <laughs> yeah, nice. I'm glad to have you with us. But let's think about this. You know, I've heard people say about guys like Tim Tebow or, or celebrity football players that are uh, Christian. And boy, if, if, if look at the platform he would have. But imagine the testimony of an like an unbelievable college football player who is probably most likely going to go or maybe even without a chance or without a shadow of a doubt going to go number one in the draft, but says, I'm foregoing the opportunity to go to the NFL because I cannot forsake the assembling together in my local church of the testimony that would give to the world, as opposed to somebody saying I'm a Christian and they continuously gather on, on the, or, or go and play football on the Lord's day. Maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm just uh, <clears throat> throwing it out there. But again, as Mike said, we have to take those things into consideration. What does it show the world when we say, my job is working on this day. And there are the, the, the means or the necessities that are out there, the means of mercy, the, somebody that's a doctor, somebody that's you know a nurse, somebody that's a, a paramedic, they're a police officer, somebody that's got to be involved in society and may have to work those days. But what does that say when someone who has the freedom and has the ability to say, my job doesn't force me to do that. I choose to do this job because I enjoy it, but I can also find my rest and my hope and my comfort in Christ and gather together on the Lord's day. I mean, you think of Eric Little, the track runner, I think Scottish, who wouldn't race on the Sabbath day. He wouldn't race on Sundays. Um, I withdraw from, I think it was an Olympic event, if I remember the story right, because they raced on Sunday. A great track, like one of the fastest men on the earth at the time. You know, just that powerful. And I think it comes back to a quote, to quote R.C. Sproul again. And uh, I need to find it to be, I think it was one of the um, national conferences. But he talks about how churches try to look like entertainment. You have a third-rate band with a third-rate singer playing third-rate songs. And what would be different preaching the word singing hymns that's different that's what's going to attract people to it not assimilating with the culture but being different and when we consider chapter 22 it considers us how are we different from those who reject god's revelation they shouldn't they should be worshiping on sunday they should be doing these things. So what does it mean to worship the Lord on the Lord's day? And chapter 22 tells us we forsake the worldly pleasures. Not that they're bad. We forsake um, work on the Lord's day. Not because it's bad. God calls us to work. 
There's a theology of work that we work six days and we rest one. There's something to that and to think about it. But at the end of the day is, is God worthy to set a day apart for worship or is he not? That's the question. And the catechism rightly says, yes, he is. And this is how he said he, we should be we doing it. All right. So I know we've gone long. George, we want to thank you for coming on and co-hosting with us tonight, talking about the 1689 chapter 22. And we want to let you have the final word here tonight. Anything you would add or want to leave with the listeners uh, concerning this confession that we went over tonight? Oh, boy. Well, first and foremost, thank you, gentlemen, so much for having me on. It's a real pleasure to uh, know that there's a community of us out there. Sometimes it can be very lonely. Um, and so I appreciate this camaraderie here. For anyone who's listening, um, the first word that I always hear out of people's mouth when I say I'm confessional is the word legalist. Um, and I would like to, uh, I would, <laughs> I'd like to hear Tim Tebow's words of schedule. That's phenomenal. Um, I would like to just, I hope that this was an eye opener for you. That this is not just a bunch of guys coming in with a bunch of rules for rules' sake. Um, these are these are men who just really strained in the scriptures and at the behest of the, of the Holy spirit in them and their sanctification and what God is showing them about the scriptures to really give us quite honestly, guys, a systematic theology on what it means mm -hmm. to believe mm -hmm. in what we believe. Um, and so I would encourage you. Um, I have this actually, this is the 1689 London Baptist confession of faith in modern English. Uh, you can get this at founders press it's only $5 and it is the modern English version of the confession. I would encourage you to get it, read it. If you would like to know where you can get one, go to our website, beaconbiblestudy.org, go to under what we believe, go to confession. And there's a link there that'll scoot you right over to founders and you can read it there and you can also purchase a copy there. Um, but all, all we're saying with the confession is this, why throw away wonderfully Holy Spirit revealed truths from brothers of the past? Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, that's been G220 Radio. Until next time, God bless.